standard lyrics Alvin Lee 10 years after love to change the world world's changing without us we might as well try and set ourselves up to where we benefit from the changes that we can't control and the one thing I've learned out of this life is that the only thing you can control is yourself and that's what we try and focus on here it's the 8th of March a Friday of course uh, my co-host and friend Brent Winters on with us from no telling where all and uh, welcome back, Brent. It's an interesting time because the air feels very heavy to me uh, in a sense, and I'm metaphorically trying to get across that there are some really, really important, important things that are hanging in the balance, but they're hanging. They're not out front. They're not retreating. They're just kind of sitting there marking time. So there's no doubt all of them at one point or another are going to come to the forefront. But I just feel a heaviness in the air. It's interesting. I think next week's going to be a real volatile week. I just get that feeling. How you doing, man? All right, Roger. You good, all good. right. I just keep chugging along. You know, in the midst of the madness of this world order, the constant stirring of the of the ferrocytes of this world, the upset that's always going on. Of course, the evil empire profits from confusion. I want to do something that I've been chafing at the bit to do for a long time, if you'll let me. Of course, I'll let you do whatever you'd like, sir. Is your program as much as mine here? Let's see, I want well, to call Chris back. Chris is wanting to join us, so I'll be doing that while you dive into where you want to go. Well, all I wanted to do, and as I say in the midst of this madness, is to reiterate uh, our anchor, and we must focus on those things that anchor us. And one of the Great expressions. Well, there are a couple of really good ones. One of them was good written. Good morning. Hello, Chris. Hey, Chris. One of them was good. One of them was written by a fellow named uh, Henry Van Dyke, who was a classmate of Woody Wilson at Princeton, and he was appointed. Wilson appointed him ambassador to the Netherlands. Later, he was a Presbyterian preacher, Henry Van Dyke, and he wrote the song that has. Become, become so well known to us uh, well those of us that are a little older at least my country tis of thee we all know the lyrics probably and there was a time when that song was considered our national anthem although never officially and of course uh, what we call our national anthem now was never officially our na national anthem until Herbert Hoover signed a uh, piece of legislation making it so and that hadn't been that long ago either no it hadn't and you know but as you talk about that at that that yeah. song you're talking about sweet liberty i haven't heard that in years well i haven't either but we sang it as children yes i remember, I remember. that's why it yeah. triggered me what you're saying go on please well the the uh, song my country tis of thee was set to the words of God Save the King, an English tune, of course. And there's a history behind that. And I, at some point, I have to cut off all the history from every direction and focus. But Henry Van Dyke was a son of a 
of a uh, an immigrant family from the Netherlands, and they were Dutch, but he himself was Presbyterian. And those folks were, the Presbyterians and the Dutch are almost identical in their understanding of Christianity with some minor variations, but almost identical. They're, as people say, part of the Reformed faith, Reformed, a true Protestantism, as they call it, um, unlike other people that call themselves Protestants. They really aren't in that sense. Uh, Henry Van Dyke officiated at the funeral of Sam Clemens, Mark Twain. Uh, he was well-known in his own day, and uh, he wrote a lot of impo- important poems, but I want to get back to the one that we now, na- and that's an important one. That song is beautiful. It's well-written. But I want to get back to the to the one we call the National Anthem today, and just briefly, it won't take but a second, read the verses of that song. Uh, we sing the first verse often. Most of us, again, folks that are a little older, know the words to the first verse because we sing it. Traditionally, we sing it aloud when it, you hear it. And when you hear it, traditionally, we stand up. Uh, that's part of our tradition. We stand up and put our hand over our heart. And if we're men and we're covered, we take our hats off. But the song was written from the decks while a man, Sir uh, Francis Scott Key, was on the deck of a, a British man-of-war, and that ship was shelling uh, Fort McHenry and through the night. And he was there because he had received permission from the President of the United States to go on board and try to negotiate the release of a prisoner that the British had taken. His family had retained him as a lawyer to do that. Uh, there, it was a family member, an older fellow, that was a medical doctor. And he went on board, but then the skipper of the ship, the old man, said, well, I can't let you go back because you've seen what's on board here and you know what we're fixing to do. We're fixing to, to bombard Fort McHenry, so you're going to have to stay here until the bombardment is over. And the bombardment lasted all night. But let me read the words of the song here, just one, four verses. I used to have to sing these. Uh, well, I learned them. I was required to learn the, all four verses so that I could sing them while in uh, the most unusual conditions. That's a long story, <laughs> but I learned them well that way. Unusual, miserable, con- physically miserable conditions. But here's the way it is. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we'd hailed at the twilight's last gleaming whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight or the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming. And the rocket's red glare, the bomb bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Oh, say, does that star-spangled banner yet wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave? Now that I've finished the first stanza, I want to drop a couple of footnotes. The rocket's red glare referred to a new invention of the British of that time. They also used this rocket at the Battle of New Orleans. It was a glorified bottle rocket. Bottle rocket. The kind we used to take on the 4th of July and stick down in the Coke bottles and then light the end and it would go up in the air. That's what it was. With this, It looked just like a bottle rocket, too, and they had... Pipings on the sides of the ship, they'd put the 
stick on the end of the bottle rocket, but it was as big as long as a half as long as a man because on the end it had an explosive charge. And it was designed to shoot up in the air and then ignite or ignite and blow up over top of the enemy at a certain distance. So that's the rocket he's talking about there. And when he says Star Spangled, Spangled is an old Dutch Germanic word that means uh, buckle. And it referred to the shiny buckle of a belt or a boot or a or another kind of a ornament put on a man's clothing. And so spangled means came to mean that which shine, is shiny, brass and uh, other metals. And so our flag, of course, is star spangled. Now, um, stanza, cha- uh, stanza number two. Now, he's on the deck of the ship, of course, looking toward Fort McHenry. He says, On the shore dimly seen, through the mist of the deep, where the foe's haughty host in dread silence reposes. What is that which the breeze, o'er the towering steep, as it fitfully blows, half conceals, half discloses? Now it catches a gleam of the morning's first beam." In full glory reflected now shines in the stream. Tis the star-spangled banner. Oh, long may it wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. And then he gets to contemplating. That was what he observed. But now he's he's contemplating what all this means. He says, And where is that band who so vauntingly swore that the havoc of war and the battle's confusion, a home and a country should leave us no more. Their blood has washed out their foul footsteps' pollution. No refuge could save the hireling and slave from the terror of flight or the gloom of the grave. And the star-spangled banner in triumph doth wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. One more verse, one more stanza. Oh, thus be it ever, when free men shall stand between their loved home and the war's desolation. Blessed with victory and peace, may the heavens resc- heaven-rescued land praise the power that hath made and preserved us a nation. Then conquer we must, when our cause it is just. And this be our motto, in God is our trust. And the star-spangled banner in triumph shall wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. Those are words that are that are uh, the product of an experience of observing the deepest adversity. One group of men trying to blow up and annihilate another group of men. And he, he watched all this from the viewpoint of his enemy. And as all of our common law, the best expressions of it, the only real true expressions of it, come out of the midst of the deepest adversity. When men picked up uh, their, their quills, including King John, to scrive his name on Magna Carta, they had swords drawn. It was in the throes of the deepest adversity. When the Scottish Covenanters scrived their names on the covenants of the covenants of Scotland, it was in the throes of the deepest, ugly 
attempted slaughter of their own people by other people in their own country, in their own country, on their own island, I should say. They were as good as countrymen. When men picked up the quills to scrive their names on the Declaration of 76 and upon the Declaration of Independence, or the rather the Constitution of the United States, those two documents, as one fellow said, gunpowder, the reek of gunpowder, then hung in their noses. When Langton, even going back again to Magna Carta, when he drafted Magna Carta, uh, the whole country was in the throes of impending civil war. And these documents that we look upon as so fundamental to us that we need to go back and re-examine, turn our eyes towards our origins and look there for a sign, these documents all arose out of the thing that our common law says is the only way the expression of the common law can arise, and that is through the trial of adversity. That's why in our common law country we have trials, and our expressions of our law arise out of the opinions of, and the verdicts of juries and judges, and they're called opinions, of opinions and findings, and they only arise out of adversity. And our common law, which is due process, the course of our common law is only known only known, can only be known, says our courts, and rightly so, in the midst of adversity. There's nothing hypothetical about our common law, nothing stinking of library dust, of monkish cloisters, nothing of the smelly, smelliness of all that, of candles and quietness. It's all out of adversity. So we shouldn't be discouraged by the adversity that does occur. Because our common law only, only, only responds to adversity. Dead German philosophers are not the stuff of our common law. Dead Greek philosophers and French philosophers and Italian philosophers are not the stuff of our common law. It's meaningless to us. The only thing that means anything is adversity. And when adversity arises, that's when our common law, it, its hand is strengthened. And all things that are good, if we still have the imprint of it on our beings, all things good will arise. And I perceive that is what is going to happen in our own country as we continue in all of the apparent confusion. Back to you, Roger. Boy, we certainly got our fair share of adversity, not only at the present, but brewing. Uh -huh. um, and that's really, the you know, what you just brought that to a head with is why I formatted the program like we have and go forward the way we do, because I'm kind of pi pioneering here. And uh, to make this a platform where we can have d uh, information like you just delivered, where people like Chris can join us, where folks like the new guy yesterday, we had a new guy call in, uh, and we spent about an hour or better, hour and 15, maybe an hour and 30 minutes covering basics for him. They're really for everybody, but he called in and got them addressed personally. And uh, so, uh, you know, I, we've had several new callers lately. I feel it's growing, but I, I've just come to the conclusion over doing this for so many years, and I've realized that I can't go out and change that. I can't do what Alvin Lee want. I can do what he wanted to do. I can't do like he said. You've got to change the world. I don't know what to do. Well, all I know to do is this. Okay, and somehow this word and these truths are going to get out and reach the right people. Don't know when, don't know how, but I know they are. Okay, and what we, what I personally 
try and do is just do what I do and improve as best I can to get ready for that time. And it's people like you, Brent, and what you bring to the table, like what you just covered here in the first 15 minutes, are so important. You know, I, I don't, I guess at some point in the past I have read those other uh, verses, but they sure didn't ring too true with me, especially two and three. I think, you know, you used to sing one and four, you know. Uh, right. But uh, we got something real uh, special here going. I mean, I, I can uh -huh. tell the quality of the people that are attracted to the message, the quality of the friendships and the folks that have come and participate uh, on our little platform here. And uh, I just know we got something real special and real different too, which I like. Well, I've heard, I've heard some recently some from some people that have said, well, I heard you on People's Patriot Network and I want to ask you this, or I want to talk about that, or I want you to send me this booklet, or, and all of that, of course, just one at a time. That's important. The Bible says, do not despise the day of small things. And it, that applies uh, to the small things, our ability to give communication. I'm reminded of that story, that story in the writs of God. Uh, it says that there was a man in Syria it was very well known, very powerful. He was the general officer of the entire Syrian army, and he had a family, had a home. He was highly respected among his people. And then the text says, but he was a leper. And he had a servant girl in his house who was an Israelitish girl that had been taken captive in war. And she was working there in the house and, uh, she knew what the problem was, and she heard something said as she passed through one of the rooms uh, doing her tasks, and she just off cuff made a comment. She said, I know a fella down home that can take care of that. That's all she said, and I'm not giving you the exact quote, but that's really what she said. didn't say much more. And from that little offhand comment of that young girl who was a slave girl, this fellow who was so well-known had such a great reputation among his own people, a very powerful man. He began to snoop around because he was desperate. He knew he was going to die in his time, his career, and his everything was over. And he found his way down to this man who was a law talker. Law talker. That's what a prophet is. He's a law talker. He talks about the law of God and the consequences of it, whether good or bad. I think that's the best... That, I think that's the best way to, to view that, that fancy word prophet. And, you know, people, are you going to say something, Roger? I don't no, I was you. laughing because of what you just said, law prophet. I've never heard it certainly before applied to that, and it's excellent. Go ahead, please. Well, in the POW culture of our federal prisons, a lot of the people that are there are prisoners of political well, their pris their imprisonment is politically motivated. There's no question about that. And then the, inside those microcosms of uh, men, uh, there are offices that the different groups of men have in those places. Uh, and every group of Well, now what's going on here? I guess we just got a little fade there in Brent. He'll be back in a second, I'm sure. Chris, you there? 
I am, as a matter of fact. Okay. I have to tell you, Roger, since Brent's not there, and good morning to Brent also, that you are changing hearts and minds. You're lighting brush fires in the minds of men and women out here. They may not be as many as you'd hope for, but the ones that are lit are lit brightly and burned fervently in their hearts and minds. I, I know that. And changing. I, I, I know and that. Brent's words, words this morning, they struck a chord with me in my heart, my essence. These histories of our songs that we hold dear in the culture of America are so foundationally important, and we're not taught the inner meanings of these things, as Brent was sharing with us this morning, and they are critically important for us to know our history from where we came in order to avoid where we're going, I think. Yeah, we got to know. You know, when you're looking forward, you always got to be looking back. Okay? Uh, because that's where your anchor is. It says it says that Brent had left the conversation, so I don't know if he's got... He could have had a phone call. Well, he, no, no, I don't, well, who knows? He'll be back in or check back in or something. I'll... Uh, I'll get right back with him, or he'll get right back with us. Um, let's see, what struck me out of all of that? Um, well, you're musing. I, I, I understand and I grasp clearly what Brent is speaking about when he's talking about American due process of law, substantial justice, the ability to be noticed and be heard, and when you're deprived of those, that's antithetical to Americanism. That's foreign legal ease that's been brought here on this country to seditiously undermine and destroy the republic, destroy, destroy our so-called institutions of law. Well, when you um, lose the right to, not, when you lose the right to be heard, you've lost the other half of due process, and you have no due process. So obviously, it's tyrannical. Exactly. That's that's the logic I'd follow on that. Uh, and that's what we do is we force them to go back to, to due process, to lawful, lawful due process, not the over-veneer legal that they're so adept at, the laws of the city of manipulating, conf conflagurating, configurating, and everything else they do to them to turn <laughs> it and use it against you and make you, you know, it feel like, Chris, let's see, because uh, you're in this about somewhere up around the top of your eyeballs, all right? And it's <laughs> like when you uh, when you take a bath or a shower in the morning and you use a washcloth if any of you use a washcloth and you go back and you're you know you're getting out and everything and you take that washcloth and you really wring it out isn't that about how you feel <laughs> well i do feel rent at the end of the day and uh undergoing their processes and knowing what's going on this is the thing that's so uh, disconcerting to me is I know what American common law is. I know what the presumption of innocence is supposed to be in a criminal case. I know you have to have a corpus delecti, an injured party of property, to have a crime. And whenever you see these little ministerial, inquisitorial, star chamber, tyrannical courts, and they try to go through under the pretext that they have a criminal court on a traffic infraction with no injured party, it rings to me loudly like a liberty bell uh, with a crack in it, for Christ's sake, that they haven't got a clue what law is. They don't care. They think the people are so stupid they don't know. 
and some of us do know, and it is horrifically un-American. This is well, of course, uh, absolutely. Shoot, un-American is just a just a little adjective or a little descriptor. Holy smoke! I mean, come on, it's (laughs) hidden tyranny. Uh, Bob, uh, Bob's with us. Brent hadn't come back, but Bob joined us. So, Bob, Robert, what's going on down there in the middle part of South Florida? 75 and partly cloudy. Yeah. Oh, I just had something pop into my head when you were talking about due process. I had I had another little, I don't even know what to call it, but in my mind I just call it a T-shirt, you know, pop up some little D-U-E process. Due process, not D-O process. Yeah, I know. That's good. <laughs> now, Bob, that's, re- that's real <laughs> that's good. What- that's what they're doing to us. They're processing us like cattle. Well, that's exactly but right. As well. process, All right. doing the process. Can I validate it for them? Why shouldn't they? You're a piece of property. There you go. Yeah, put your head in the noose or head in the stall and get dehorned and dewormed and castrated and all the rest of it and then go out and make me some money. Well, and try and so yeah. you can get in a position to get out of that crap. You know, Bob and Roger, uh, Roger, you were concerned about how many lives you're touching. I was just out of town uh, yesterday and the day before and visiting some friends that are, they're on a different aspect following uh, Judge Anna von Reitzenberger's uh, uh, teachings, we'll say. And uh, she's starting to hit on some pretty important salient points that kind of parallel with ours. But the one that I posed to her this morning via email before you started was the addressing of the word term citizen and its foundational seminal organic origination and where it derives from the Roman Justibilis, the city law of Rome. And I think that is a foundational deception that Americans are all led astray on that they don't actually discern and cognize where that insidious word term comes, and that it's not a good thing, but it's a bad thing. Or, and I'm not convinced back at the very beginnings when they used that word. They uh, learned guys, the founding scoundrels or fathers, as the case may be, knew or didn't know, or some of them at least knew, that that word is a diminished form of status of a servile thing, a corporate person, a city people, a city denizen, a serve, a slave, or a cattle chattel or goyim of the city. Well, I don't disagree with you, Chris, except I think that they did note that difference, and I think that they denoted it by capitalizing the C. Well, I would say that in our present, I would say in our present case, Chris, that you're correct, but not quite to the right degree. It isn't that people don't know, it's that they don't even care. <laughs> well, they've been deceived by the public pool school uh, indoctrination and propagandized the programming system where they pull out their minds and, and take these malleable young bright minds and fill it full of lies and deceit and don't tell them the truth about the truth of our country and don't teach us anything of substance. They just program us with what they want us to know so they can effectively and efficiently manage us. Uh, Chris also wanted to say yeah, one thing. I'm are willing. 
I'd, I'd love for us to become a force, but yet the deeper I've gotten into this, the more I realize what this is, okay? And um, I, back in the early days when I didn't even know any of this stuff, all I knew was the tax side and how to present it from the bottom up, which is a three-hour presentation to do it thoroughly. And I lived in Atlanta at that time over on the northwest side, and we had a free office that we could use, a presentation room over on the east side of Atlanta. So I'd drive 30 minutes each way to go over every Wednesday night, I think, uh, and do that presentation. And I didn't know who was going to show up, if anybody was going to show up. There are a number of times nobody showed up, and I just wasted an hour of my time or more and all the gas and wear and tear and everything else. But I did it religiously every week. I remember one time I drove over there and one guy showed up. It was a Spanish or he had a little Spanish background in him, I remember. And he was the only one we waited and waited. Nobody else showed up. And I said, well, buddy, I'm going to sit here and give you a three-hour presentation. And I sat there and gave it to one guy. Okay? So, Buckle up. You're the only bet. You're the only writer. <laughs> I, you know, I've had that sense of duty about this for so many years and through all of the successes that we've had because we've had some and some of the setbacks that we've had uh that's okay listen now we got our own platform we got something to build on and be on and reach out from that no psychopath owner can mess with okay and and a lot of these people that i've dealt with in these previous uh, networks, and I'm not going to be pointing fingers or naming names, but there's a couple of them that fall into that category, okay? Some of those guys are on our side, too, the psychopaths. Ostensibly. So uh, I'm yeah. just tickled to death that we've got the crew we've got, and I see us growing, and, 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 and I'd rather have slow growth than fast growth, Chris. And I also have come to understand that, hell, man, this just isn't for everybody. It's only for a small percentage of people that it really sticks with, that it goes in, that they can't get it out of their mind, that they start taking their spare time and putting towards understanding it, and then all of a sudden, bam, they're changed. So I yeah, get I say many are called, but few are chosen. That, yes, sir. And I get a great deal of, you know, for right. me personally, I mean, just personally, I've had a pretty interesting life. I've had a lot of successes in a number of different areas. <laughs> I've met some of the most, you know, high-profile people in the world. I've, you know, all that kind of stuff. And none of that makes any difference to me. None of that gave my life any purpose. This gives my life purpose. And, and, and it just is a feedback loop, man which you can't put a price tag on. That's why I don't try and sell you guys anything. I mean, hell, if you knew how much fun I was having, you'd charge me. Hey, let's talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> Bob goes, where can I, where can I send that invoice? <laughs> so, uh, but it's a joy to get on here. You, you know, and I, I, you got stuck down there in Argentina for five or six years with a bunch of dimwits around you. And anybody that I wanted to have any kind of this level of conversation with, I had to go back and educate them from the ground up before you could talk to them about the important stuff. So to have this as an outlet two hours a day to discuss these high intellectual end uh, 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 concepts and, and come to these truths that we talk about is just a thrill. 
Well, the truth is, well, it is. Really. And then I'd ask you guys, where the hell else are you going to go and get uh, this kind of discussion? Haven't found the Dickens are pretty slim. I don't think you will either, Bob. We might get some copycats there if we make a little that, success down the road. I see people ripping off well, my... Well, people that nibble around the edges. Yes. Uh, somebody know, mentioned... Some folks nibbling around the edges, but it's always in their case, it seems like they're looking to sell a product, mm-hmm. and they're doing the process to you. <laughs> well, let me give you an let me give you an example. A guy that I've known for a while wants to go through the affidavit process. He's still checking his temperature on it and everything. And so somewhere he stumbled <laughs> on some other guy and he mentioned the name to me. I said, "Well, I've never heard of him." He says, "Well, he does what you do and you file an affidavit, but then they want you to go back and sever all of the contracts that you've been in." I said, "You don't need to do that." Okay, because what this guy doesn't understand is he's dealing with the feudal era. And that you could volunteer out of servitude at any time. The only cost was if there was consideration given in the original contract. You had to give it back to the Lord of the Manor if you were leaving. Okay, so once that event happens, if you were on the manor and you'd talk to the butcher and whatever and had all these contracts and all of a sudden you left the manor and left, all those are severed. And besides, they're all based on fraud, the fraud of this whole scheme. And fraud uh, vitiates any contract ab initio from the beginning. And that's why they won't give us any backlash. That's why nobody gets any grief from this. They've been caught absolutely in the single biggest fraud in the history of the planet. Agreed. Roger, I came across some pretty interesting stuff yesterday. You know, I'm doing the passport thing, and I'm going a little deeper and you know, surprise, surprise, I'm being a little more investigatively, critically diligent and looking into the microscopic aspects of it because there's so many things going on uh, that affect my life directly and the loss thereof, potentially, uh, in reality. And I came across something on the Passport.gov and, uh, website uh, through perusing around and uh, going to different fields and stuff, looking into these special passport, special issue agency, special issue passport agency aspects. And it appears there's a a document repository area, Office of Authentication, that keeps the documents that are sent in. And it's such a secret and deeply hidden aspect, they don't even have a phone number. They have an address that you can uh, write to on Mercure uh, Court and a P.O. box in Sterling, Virginia, but it, it's really so obviously hidden that it bears some deep attention, and I think that would be the location that you might send your docs to to get them entered into your so-called individual master file or official record of the government's database uh, to put that on the record for the Secretary of State, well, the U.S. Department of State. Again, I don't think you need to do that. They, they, uh, if the IRS sends you something to the last address they had for you, even though that was 15 years ago and you've moved 10 times, they still consider it received by you. 
And the same thing in reverse works. And if you send one to Foggy Bottom up there, Secretary of State, whatever the damn mailing address is, return receipt requested. And if you wanted to do what the, the angle you're going to, I would get that pre-notorial uh, 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 mailing deal done where you go to a notary, they verify what was in the return receipt yeah. requested thing. Boom, you're done. It's the up to them. attestation of mailing is what we call that, a notarial attestation of uh, mailing. It tells you what documents are in the uh, mailing and that the notary saw you actually place those docs in there, and therefore you have a copy that goes inside and you keep one for yourself as a documentary, testamentary, evidentiary record of what was mailed, and then when they sign for it, that is irrefutable evidence of the 901 parenthetical 7 that they were served, they received it, and somebody responsible accepted it, so therefore it is evident. Yep. They can't return that return receipt requested without a signature on it. And whoever that is needed to get it to the right department. I think that's covering enough, okay? And I appreciate people's concern. You know, I have people calling, well, well how do I know they've got it in my administrative file? I don't trust them. Well, I don't trust them either. But they generally do these things very right by, by the book, like they're supposed to, okay? If you do right and know what you're doing, they're generally doing right. If you're still one of those people, I think Doc Gatton was the last one that called up. Hello, come on there, buddy. Uh, so I think Doc Gatton was the last one that called that. in with that question. And I, it's very simple. Send your affidavit in. A couple of weeks later, send a FOIA in. Yeah, for you, your administrative folder, and see if it's in there. I guarantee you it will be in there. Right, that's a, go ahead. No, that's okay. I, wouldn't, I think Bob. No, I was just, I was just agreeing. Okay, so that you know, we got a couple of easier ways to deal with it, but uh, I, I think these guys, and, the, and I just love it that people are sending them in, and. This part of this is personal with me too, because those bastards stole thirty-five thousand dollars from me at the closing of my house on all this hypothecated crap they'd put on me. Okay, uh, okay, here, Chuck, I'll call you right back. Uh, and so, every time one of you guys sends one of these affidavits in, I just get a little bit of that thirty-five thousand back. I don't get it back right. physically, but I get back the satisfaction of knowing that I'm sticking one right up their barracks bag, okay? And I get a lot of satisfaction out of that. Hey, Chuck, welcome. Good morning. Morning, guys. How you doing? Hello, Chuck. How be you? I'm doing pretty good. How be you? Good, Bob. I'll tell you, Bob's a, Bob, did you eat your Wheaties this morning or something? <laughs> Uh, He's on a I just don't get out of the house much. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chuck, what you got on uh, your mind? Well, yes, I do. I do, fortunately. Um, I wanted to ask some questions about the Europa video. And Brent, I was hoping to bring that up with Brent, but he's not back on yet. Well, I just shot him um, a message a minute ago and said, when you can, get, you come back and join us if you can. So, anyway, we'll just continue. Shoot with your questions. We've got Robert on here joined us out there from Reno, well, too. Before, yes, I get to that, before I get to that, I, there's a couple of uh, 
if I may, there's a couple of questions like what you along the lines of what you guys was talking about just now. Okay. Um, I had, you know, we had I had made multiple originals of that affidavit, <clears throat> and then Terrence, I mentioned it to Terrence, and Terrence said, "Well, you know, really, you're not supposed to have a a whole bunch of originals of one copy of one particular." Or like the affidavit, you're supposed to have the original and then copies of the original, and then you would send that to the people that you're trying to deal with. Sometimes, now, you know, they could come back and say, and I've seen it done in 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 legal stuff or in the past, is they want a blue letter signature, blue ink signature on the original, and sometimes in these legal proceedings, they want the original. Okay. Well, oh yeah. So uh, my experience, I wouldn't have any idea where the original is on my affidavit, okay, that was originally sent in almost 30 years ago. Somebody's gurgling in the background there. But I've never had it. I've never had one, any copy that I've sent in turned down or any kind of problems from that being a copy. You have had recent stuff, Chris? Well, I've got some recent intel. I was on that site, like I say, yesterday on the Department of State itself's website on travel.gov and doing my cruising around. Well, I found that intel about the document section, the authentication section, and uh, they had some language in there that suggested that they uh, preferred or wanted or insisted on original documents. And to his point, yes, there is only one original unless you multiply authenticate and notarize and wet ink on white paper uh, various copies so then you could have multiple originals although they say that they will send your original documents back under or proofs of citizenship as they call it they do non-citizenship case may be back under separate cover so they Hmm. they claim they will although some of these documents are very difficult to get they might be impossible to replace and so I understand that you might want to at least preserve a color copy and maybe get a notarized color copy of the original for the notary attest that was made from the actual document, and therefore it is an accurate and authentic representation of that was sent. So you have something to preserve to document that you did, in fact, have the original instrument and you entrusted it to the government. And if you didn't get it back, they mishandled it and uh, inappropriately and didn't give it the proper courtesy and accommodation of authenticity and return. There you go. Well, and, I and if that makes you sleep better at night, Chuck, you do it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I do have multiple <laughs> copies. My daughter and I both do of the original that are notarized. We also, I mean, not copies. We have their, we have <laughs> uh, duplicitous, I guess you'd say, mm-hmm. uh, original, many multiples so but uh, that are notarized but the copy i also have copies of that notarized original as well and i was going to use those to hand out to uh, uh, at least to the like the police or whatever if we get pulled over or something like that um hello this is stephanie hi stephanie at the tone please record your message (laughs) when you finish recording (laughs) or press one for more options Hi, <laughs> Hey. 
We're always glad to have extra females. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, did that catch me by totally off guard. Steffi, hang up. I'll call you right back. You were trying to call in. I've got to, unfortunately, I've got to do this is, is call people back. So uh, I, I know you called in. Hang up. I'll get you right back. Boy, is that funny. Go ahead. I'm sorry, guys. Um, well, I was just going to say, you know, I have the copy of the originals that was originally notarized, but that copy itself is not a fresh notary stamp on it. So I don't, I'm just trying to clarify what you guys are saying. The notary stamp does not expire. Once you've had it authenticated, it's good for time and eternity. So you don't need a fresh stamp on a copy then. It's already been notarized. Sometimes you might find it beneficial, Chuck, to update your, uh, affidavit as we become more aware and more in tune with the operant circumstances on the verbage, the terms and the means of the terms, you might wish to enhance and embellish it with more power, authority, and accuracy. But there can only be one original notarized copy. Now, you might have an amended or appended. Uh, when you addendum, you add to. When you amend, you replace. And that's an important distinction between those two words. Okay. Okay, so it's not it's not necessarily a bad thing to have multiple originals, I guess. Yes, and you keep the one. In fact, something that you might find beneficial. I get these little plastic um, indicators, page Link. markers, or stick on. There's skinny ones, and there's other ones. I get them from the ninety nine cent store. Come in about six colors. And I like to put a blue sticker uh, on the back document of the original, the wedding signed copy, as you speak, so I can clearly keep it because, like you say, I might want to make multiple copies to use for official purposes of court pleadings or police inquisitions or other mm-hmm. aspects where you want to put it onto the record in your cases, as we might want to do. But there is only one evidentiary testamentary copy of the original. Okay. Police inquisitions, huh? That's a good, that's a good so, statement. Uh, let me let me make a shout out to Stephanie here. I'm trying to get you back, and Morning, I, I can't. No, don't. She isn't here, and I can't get her back. And I don't know why I can't mm. find her when I can see her over on one side, which means she's got a profile. And I go with well, that. Now the message is over. And I call, try and call her back the way that we bring people into the conversation with this wonderful new Skype software. And she's not there. You have reached the maximum time permitted for recording uh, your message. If you're satisfied. With now message, she's trying to call back to listen again. to your message. Okay. Press two. To erase and re-record. Oh, press man. Three. I, I, I'll tell you what. I, I can't. Stephanie. Stephanie, you're trying to call. Hold on. If I can't. If you're satisfied with the message. Press 1. To listen to your message, press 2. To erase and re-record, press 3. Hang up. Hang up. End the call. End the call. All right, hold on. Maybe now I can get her back. Hold on a second. Man, what a absolute nightmare this is. Hold on. I think we'll get her this time. Um... Well, you just keep going back to oh, the well. You, you just keep going back to the well till you beat this thing. Stephanie, is that you finally? <laughs> yes, it is. Well. Hello, Stephanie. At last. Hi. Hi. And I was calling on my phone, and I had you on the computer. 
here too, and then I called you like on both because you got it. The well, and, and to, until I can find, I can get out of everything. Yeah. Well, it locked. Well, I tried to call yeah, you. I had to get out of everything. Well, I, well, you got a nice message on your voicemail that's about thirty seconds of the program. <laughs> Twice. <laughs> So, Stephanie, well, listen, okay. talk straight into the phone. You're a little bit faint, and I'd love to have, hear from you again. And uh, do you have a question or a comment? Well, I have a comment. Okay. And it's about, you know, what Brent, I've, I've heard him say on National Liberty Alliance. And then also, you know, I just kind of listen to other people what that they're trying to do. And you have to... I mean, and it's like you have to live the Constitution and live common law. Yes. And people, they don't understand what that. Apparently, all these things that we're trying to do, they haven't gotten a memo that we've switched over and they need to accept the things that we are doing that they're right. And, well, in case in point that brought me to call is. My dad's a veteran in South Dakota, and and he his he's sick. To forward with an inter. Hello. All right, hold on. And we got something funky happening he here. I'm trying to get Brent back. He tried to get into us and listening to you and trying to keep all these things juggled. So it's about your father, did you say, Stephanie? Right. Right. He. My dad's a veteran, and he's in South Dakota. And so when you're trying to go through the system, trying to get to the Mayo Hospital, because he said that before he would go to Rapid City Regional Hospital, he'll die first, which he's about there. And so he's been trying to get a referral, and he's a, he's a veteran, and and he's tried through Rapid City Regional, he's tried through the VA in Rapid, and they said that his Medicare doesn't cover... Doesn't cover... He can't go to the Mayo Clinic. Yeah, and they won't give him a referral. Okay. And so he's... And, I mean, so they don't have the memo about, you know... And the veterans can go wherever they want to for health care, you know, and and then so you're and, and just like what you're you're dealing with your affidavits and things, the people you've talked to they go by what they've thought. They don't know any difference. And I mean, so, you know, to get them caught up to speed, I think a person just has to keep, you know, being very um persistence and follow the process that we've been learning from Brent Allen Winters. I think that shows us how to do it. And the more people that keep doing it, I think it'll just kind of go in line there. Okay, somebody's got stuff in the background. Please hit your mute. I got phones ringing. I don't know to who. Brent, did you come back in with us or not? Brent's not with us. Uh, Stephanie, I don't, I don't know. I would have no idea what to do about your father's situation, quite honestly, and I don't know how 
the stuff that we normally talk about around here could help that situation. Maybe Brent talks about that on some of the other programs that he does. I, it's not in my ballywick particularly. Um, Brent, did you join us yet? Okay, we got Chuck on here, we got Chris on here, we got Robert on here, we got Bob on here, and we got Stephanie on here. Is that right? Anybody else on here that I didn't just name off? I think you will call the Okay. Say, Roger, if you wanted to blast my communication information to Stephanie, <laughs> I might be able to provide her a little bit of direction uh, she's dealing with a private for private profits corporation agency, the Veterans Administration. So it's a little bit of a ballywick. They usually have a customer service agency or an oversight committee. It might be an IG or an ombudsman uh, to facilitate uh, correcting errors and solving issues like she's describing. I would counsel. Okay, but I don't know how to, I don't have Stephanie's email and stuff. Stephanie, would you send an email to Radio Ranch, one, one word, uh, two words together, Radio Ranch at mail, M-A-I-L dot com? Stephanie, are you with, did, you, did you get that? Did you copy that? Well, now we lost Stephanie. Well, this is a... Uh-oh. Uh, Hopefully she's listening. Oh, hopefully she's listening. Stephanie, Cindy said you had your computer and your phone on there. Uh, send a email from Stephanie to to Radio Ranch at mail m a i l dot com, and I'll hook you up with Senor Chris because he said he has some things that Mike can help you out. Well, I'm trying to get Brent raise Brent still, so I don't know what's going on here technically, but we got a pretty good signal today. We hadn't lost, dropped out or anything, so uh, it's yep. a it's a lovely yep. day in Ecuador. Robert, you joined us. You hadn't hardly mumbled, but once or twice. What's going on with you? Not too much. Just sitting there listening to the good stuff. But I do have a a question for the B man, if I may. Bob, sure. Robert. If uh, one of my bosses at Panasonic is like you, Chuck, into bees, and he has several hives, he, he's really into it, and he, want, he wants a bunch, like a hundred or so. Anyway, he was telling me, are you aware that you can take a bee and graft it or craft it or whatever and turn it into a queen? Were you aware of that? Uh, you can take, yeah, I mean, you, they do what's called grafting. I'm not, I don't graft, not, I mean, I haven't gotten into that. It's a little more complicated, and you got to have you got to have a little more time in order to invest in that sort of thing. So, I do. Um, that's it's. If you're a hobbyist, more I they would call me a hobbyist because I only have a certain amount of a few hives. But mm. I, I'm not a hobbyist to where that's the only thing that I do or anything like that. Because I also garden. And I uh, do hand work, and I do, gotcha. I do, I fix my, I'm a DIY guy. I fix my own cars. I fix everything, my computers, and usually, and whatever breaks, I'm the one who usually fixes it. So I don't have time to just get involved in all that stuff. Um, yeah. But yeah, you can you can take a larva and graft it. A, um, there are other variables that. They're all the same larva. There's not a queen larva. 
but they will but the bees themselves will put it in a what a queen cell that's what it does and so it grows to the the width and size of that particular cell and they feed it royal jelly yeah for the duration of its uh larva stage so well that's you, what makes it a queen well listen yeah. robert you're out you say you're in reno now yeah, for now. Well, all you have to do is go a little bit west. They take drones and make them into queens every day out there. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Just like Alpha Lee said. Well, and it's, it's kind of fascinating to a talk, Chuck, because according to him, a queen can lay up to 2,500 eggs a day every second yeah. day during the spring and summer. Yeah. And I'm thinking 20, all 2,500 won't live, obviously, but it's like, like say, 2,000 no. do. You yeah. have 100,000 bees yeah. pretty damn quick with enough queens, easily. Yeah, it's it's yeah they can explode on you. You got to stay on top of them in the spring. If you got enough nectar and flow and all that, then yeah, you got to stay on top of them or you're going to have swarms. They'll swarm on you. So. You know, Chuck, they got uh, they got honey down here. They got a lot of eucalyptus trees down here. They were foreign trees, and so they brought them here a uh, hundred something years ago. And they're all over the place. They suck up a bunch of water, and they get real big if you'll let them, you know, 180, 100 feet. But they make honey. So, somehow when they flower, they've got a honey that comes from that eucalyptus flower that they sell in the store that is just, you go to eat honey, and it's like eucalyptus. And it's just real different, man. It, so the bees don't collect it? They, they, I don't, it just comes off? I don't know. I'm sure it comes through the bee process somehow, but the honey is really heavily tainted with eucalyptus, and so you get that. Dense. As long as we're on that vein and we have Bob on the line and Robert up Reno, who also has some bee interest, my question that I had wanted to ask Bob some time ago pursuant to a question that came up back then, is we know that each environmental specialty area of the world has its own indigenous trees, plants, and flowering growth. Do the bees in each area have their own special quality honey, and does that special quality honey have particular medical Yes. Healative or curative effects, uh, like the different pine oils from different pine trees and other aspects that I have some familiarity with. Chris, I can answer it, not being a bee guy, and I can give you a specific example, and that's Tupelo honey. You've heard that, you know, songs and all that stuff, Tupelo have, honey. Uh, well, that's a particular no. It's not. No, it's not. It comes from Florida, oh. from the panhandle of Florida. It's just called Tupelo honey because down in that part of the country, they have a tree called a tongue tree. And it's from that tongue tree's flowers that Tupelo honey is made, and it's got a characteristic that no other honey in the world has, Chris. Hmm. You know what that is? I do not. It never sugars. Huh. It never turns wow. to sugar, and there's something about that that has a tremendous medicinal application, too. But it's got a real, real unique taste. I love the stuff. It's called right from where I come from in the panhandle of Florida. So, Yeah, I know like it's used to suck out infections and stuff, can it? Uh, yeah, a lot of people have used honey and healing, yeah. 
Now, Brent, are you back with us yet? No, Please Brent. try Skype mm. calling me. I am. I am, and you do not answer. Maybe his phone well, I can ringer. testify that there's some very specific Sin honeys because down here in Florida, uh, orange blossom honey is popular, of course, and there's several other indigenous trees like a guava tree, and guava honey is quite popular, and others, you know, of course, that's not that they can't have other in it, but if they put them out in the middle of a grove, it's pretty good chance it's going to be predominantly uh, from that particular bloom. Yeah. And boy, it does yeah. have a... All right, hold, hold. Let me, it, let me, it's a nice little flavor. Okay, Brent's calling me. Hold on just a second, guys. Hey, Brent, I'm going to put everybody on hold and answer your call because I want to find out what's going on. I'm, uh, I okay. can't, I'm trying to call you back on Skype, and, and you don't answer. Right. I'm on Skype now. Can you hook me in this way? Uh, well, no, I can't. I got to call. I got to initiate the call from here. Okay, so you want me to get off? Yeah, get off. I'll go back to the gang, and then I'll try and bring you in with us. Okay, thanks. Bye. Okay, all right. Then let's do that. We'll get these guys back on, and we'll resume our call here. See, I am learning how to do this a little bit. Uh, I think Brent may join us now. Let's see here if we can get it straight. Um, okay, guys, so we're back. Sorry to interrupt. There's Brent. Got, I, got, I think we got Brent on with us. Are you there, Brent? Yeah. Okay, good. I don't know what the Hello. heck happened, hey, but Rick. good. Glad you're back. Um, it just to button up what we were talking about, it's just uh, I'm real familiar with it because it's my whole family, my dad loved that stuff, and I've been raised on it. But I had a bottle down there in Argentina. I, had, I really sequester it and not use it too much. And so the whole time I was there, it never sugared. But the stuff is the only honey in the world that won't, and it's got some kind of medicinal purposes that are real good for you. I just don't know exactly what those are. We're talking about Tupelo honey, Brent. Oh. Um, specific. Well, not as much as probably Tupelo or Manuka, but. Yeah, there's a. What is it? Oh, now, what the heck is that? Well, that's somebody over on my other Rick system. Was Holy the smokes! songs and the lyrics to them that were really quite intriguing before he got off on a different call. I think. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna bring Patrick wants to join us too. So go ahead, Brent. If we can pick up where you were whenever we lost you. Oh yeah, I was. I forget where I was headed, but I remember what I was saying. I was talking about law talkers. Yes, that's a good yeah, place that's to pick what it, it up. Was. And, and uh, I was searching for a word to translate that Hebrew word naviim or navi. Navi, plural naviim, plural masculine, uh, is translated prophet or prophets in the Older Testament in most all translations. And the word prophet is all right. Pro means before and and to fe or fate means, uh, that's another root, means to to speak it means to speak before and if you were to take the prophets of the bible and say well what is a prophet is he a fellow that tells the future well that's can happen sometimes but that's not fundamentally what a prophet is a prophet is someone who who um, speaks uh, speaks before men he's a man a prophet is a man who represents god before men 
a prophet is a man that represents God before man or before men, and a priest is a person who a man who represents men before God. The opposite: a priest and a prophet have opposite functions. And so, um, a priest is somebody who intercedes, like Jesus Christ is the high priest of the order of Melchizedek. The Bible says in the Newer Testament, and it says that he represents us, as it were, the attorney for the defense before the judge, the father. And he, he speaks to the, to the judge who happens to be his father. It's a nice arrangement when your defense attorney's uh, father is the judge. And he trusts him, and he has an end with him. He speaks to him, and he says, I've got it covered. These fellows aren't guilty anymore. I've paid the penalty for all of their law-breaking. But then a prophet is a guy, he's a man that comes along and, and does the opposite. Properly speaking, uh, people who are true speakers of what God has said, uh, speakers of the laws of nature and the laws of nature's God, that takes in a lot of folk. Uh, they are prophets because they're representing what God has said to the rest of the world or to other men, the opposite of the priest. Well, uh, a better word in my a studied opinion for that Hebrew word, uh, Navi, is uh, law talker, because that's what he does. A prophet is a man that takes the law, and all the prophets of the Old Testament, all 17 of the books of prophecy of the Old Testament, all 17 of them just took the law of God as Moses had written it down, and they looked at it, and they said, well, the law says here if you do this, you live, and then if you do that, you die. In other words, if you... Um, observe God's statements of law, his first principles, you live. You don't do that and you die. Matter of fact, that's the theme of Deuteronomy chapter 28. Do these things, said Moses, and you'll live. Don't do them and you'll be cut off from God and the, the death process begins. So the prophets of the Older Testament and the prophets of the Newer Testament looked around, Jesus Christ being one of the main, he is the greatest prophet, of course. Of his own, hey, of his own. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. You, you said if you observe these laws, does the word observe take in as well, not just to look at or take it in, but in process it, but also does it, it cover the act of doing as well? Well, I'm glad you said, yeah, because the word observe properly means to look at. I agree with you. Uh, well, observe, we take it that way. That's really not what it means. But, yeah, it, it comes down to if you do these things. Okay. Yeah, that's right. If you do these things in this life, you will live. Your right. eternal okay. salvation does not depend upon you doing what God says in this life, though. That's an important distinction. Right. Your eternal salvation depends upon you trusting that God and the person of Jesus Christ has done, uh, that has kept the law, because you don't have any hope otherwise, and I don't either, because mm -hmm. we have not kept it perfectly, and if you, if you break it at one point, you're guilty of all and worthy of death. That's the New Testament. Right. That's what Paul says. So, but in this life, there's no question as a practical matter. God wants us to enjoy this life, and the way you enjoy it is by following his direction. So, uh, do it and you live, don't do it and you die. So the law talkers uh, read what the law said, and then they looked around and they said, well, it says here if we do these things, we're dead men. And they looked around and said, yep, 
That's what we're doing, so we're good as dead. And then they told the people, you're doomed. You are doomed. As one fellow said, by the time the prophets arrived on the scene in the Older Testament, it was all over but to cry in. It was over. The doom had already come. They came to announce doom. And we could rightly do that today in many respects. But also there is the blessings of the law. Do these things and you live. And when Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our law-breaking, he, um, he fulfilled the curse of the law. Uh, don't do this and you'll die. He, that's all gone for us. The curse is no more. And all that's left for us that are his elect, as the Bible puts it, the only thing that's left is the blessings, the life, the life more abundant. We have that. Uh, the curse is gone. As uh, Paul says in the New Testament, it's been nailed to the post, nailed to the timber, the curse, that is, not the blessings. The blessings are ours. The blessings, that's a good old word, but it's hackneyed now. It, it has to do with a blood oath. That's an old Anglo word, but what it means fundamentally is the benefits of the law. What's the benefit of the law? Do these things and you live. That's what we've got. Well, but I was talk, going back to what is a prophet. He's a law talker. He looks at the law, and he talks law. He says, well, if you do this, you're a dead man. If you do this, you're a live man. You have not cut yourself off from the source of life, and you're, you're, you've got gas in your Ford to keep you putting for the Lord, as we used to say as children. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> I found out later that out west, when I was growing up, the children would sing, uh, we'd sing, give me gas for my Ford, keep me putting for the Lord. Well, they'd sing, <laughs> give me, they'd sing, give me wax for my board, keep me surfing for the Lord. Uh, that's what I found out later when I went to California. <laughs> uh, we, but it was a great song because the truth is the, in the day you sin, you die. What does that mean? That means you're separated. Muth. It, it didn't mean that Adam and Eve or us, that we just immediately dropped dead like a sack of flour. The sturgeonness goes out of our body. What it means is we are cut off. We've got our tank filled uh, up to that point because God is our pipeline. We're connected to him. But as soon as we break law, we break that connection. And we just keep going, but we're running down. We're running out of gas. And if we don't get reconnected, we're going to run clear out of gas, and we're, we're gone. We perish. We waste away, just like a car that will run out of fuel. Give me gas for my Lord. You know, give the song, the song was about the virgins in the Bible. Jesus Christ tells the story of the virgins. And some of them went to wait for their time to go into the wedding, and they had their lamps, and they had their lamps. They were those Aladdin kind of lamps in those days. They were little containers, and they had them filled with oil. And there were some foolish virgins that got invited to the wedding, maidens, we would say, in, uh, in old English, maidens. They were the bridesmaids, we would say today. The Bible says virgins. That really separates the whole thing from what we understand. They were the bridesmaids, and they were to have lamps in their hands. And some of them filled their lamps. This is the custom of that day. Not the law of God, just the custom. Fill them with oil. So we'd sing, give me oil in my lamp. Keep me burning. Give me oil in my lamp, I pray. Give me oil in my lamp. Keep me burning, burning, burning. Keep me burning till the break of day. And that's what they were to do. At the break of day, they were to have their lamps, and that was the custom, and they go in. But there were some foolish maidens that did not uh, put plenty of oil in their lamps. And the point of that parable is, if you're cut off from God, you're cut off, your tank, your, your oil, it, the oil is the symbol of the gumption breath of God, the spirit of God, the person of that gumption breath called the spirit of God. He is the what keeps us filled up so we can keep going. 
And the only way to keep filled up is to have the remedy that he has given us. It always comes back to the remedy. Who is the, that's the Messiah of God, the anointed one. He gives us the remedy. Well, that, but the law talker is a guy who talks about the law and he says, this do you live Well, you're doing the wrong thing. You're a dead man or this do and, and you shall be blessed. You shall have life more abundant. Well, I was saying that in the federal prison system, every group of persons and persons often divide up, not always, but to a large degree in their different cultural groups and that has to do with skin color uh, often. And uh, each one of those groups has a healer. That's what they call him. And then there is the law talker. The law talker, he talked law. And the reason I like that word for prophet, not only is it, it tell the truth about what that word means, but also in the Anglo-Saxon, Anglo-Dane, Celtic world of Northern Europe, there were what men called the, the lawmen. These, this, these were common law tribes. They, they called it the Volkreicht in those days, the old Germanic word Volkreicht. And each, uh, each tribe had what they called the lawmen. Well, the reason they had the lawmen that was the law man, the law talker. The reason they had a law talker because they didn't have any writing. The only writing they had were runes that the warlocks wrote down on. Warlocks would write curses down on, <laughs> like voodoo dolls on little shreds of wood, and they called them runes. They had a special secret language, very Babylonian. But they did have the idea, and this is what made what they did, uh, why, why they received the Bible and Christianity as readily as they did. As King Alfred said, I'm, I'm no longer as I once was, King Alfred said. He was Anglo-Saxon. He said, I'm not, I do not tremble at the rustling of a leaf anymore. I'm not scared of every little demon. And he describes why, of course. But he's the one that put the Anglo-Saxon tongue in writing. But before it was in writing, men would know the customs of the law, and they had them in their heads. And these men that knew that were the older men. The wizened men, wizened, that's uh, the root of the idea of wise and witten, the wittengamot. And they were the men that formed the thing, T-H-I-N-G, thing. <laughs> that's the jury or the, 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 the eldership. And they knew the law because they remembered it because they were old men. And we go to law books today to read uh, the opinions of the courts as they pass them down from case to case, and they keep the common law standard going. Well, that's what they did back in those days, and those men, we would translate logman, law talker, law talker, logman, log is the, is the word that became law. It's a Danish word. The Jutes, the Vikings were the Jutes. Uh, the rest of the Norsemen were just as sordid, just as piratical, just as ugly, just as vicious, just as dangerous, but they weren't the Vikings. The Vikings properly were the Danes. You know, the Norwegians, the Swedes, the Anglos, the Saxons, the Frisians, all those fellows up in there, the Dutch, uh, that we call them Dutch now, but they were all a piratical, seagoing people, as William Blackstone puts it in his commentaries on the common law. But uh, the Danes were the Vikings. They were the ones that had the word log, and what is log to them? That was that which is and will not change. It always has been, always will be. It is veered. It doesn't change. Beard, we say weird, it doesn't change. That was the, the other name they gave to fate. Fate is that which you cannot change. It is the way things are. Que sera, sera. It, what will be, will be. The future is not ours to see, said Doris Day. All these concepts we have in our culture, even in the present time, 
and we are to find the law. It, our courts, even yet today, in our common law country, only in a common law country do we say these are the findings of the court, because that's from our ancient, ancient past, when men believed, as we did until very recently, that the law never changes. It's eternal. The reason it's eternal, because the lawgiver is eternal. There never was a time when he did not know all that could be known. You don't manufacture law. It's not manufactured by men or gods. It is. It is because it's personal from the lawgiver, the maker of heaven and earth. He never changes, so the standards of right and wrong and their applications in particular instances never change either. So those folk in the Old Testament, when I translate in the Bible, I call them law talkers. The word prophet is taken from the Newer Testament and the Greek Newer Testament, prophetes, and applied to the Older Testament. It's not a translation at all. It's a transliteration of a Greek word. And I do believe that God doesn't want us to just translate, transliterate words to try to approximate the sounds of the ancient words. That's meaningless to us. What he wants us to do is understand what they mean. And what that word means is law talker. Back to you, Roger. Wow, that's quite a mouthful, Brent. I'd never heard that phrase. I'd never had it examined like that before, heard it examined like that before, and it really makes a lot of sense to me. Patrick joined us in the middle of all that once or twice. I think we got him back a third time. Hey, Patrick, what's going on? And I got a question for you too, Brent. Go ahead, Patrick. Hey, I just yeah, fell out of calls coming in. Um, talking about Tupelo Honey and all, it's down here around me. Uh, I think of Van Morrison and all his song, Tupelo Honey, but... I, do, I had to have hives and uh, grew vegetables for an extensive period of time, learned the game well in the drip tape plastic mulch style of doing truck patching. And uh, you all just want to eat honey that's indigenous to your area yes. for your sinuses and anything like that. Correct. So don't don't get out here in Vegas and buy honey out there and bring it back here to the south. It, <laughs> it'll taste good. It'll it'll feel good. But it just don't. It might they might it might make you want to go back and gamble. But if it, at the end of the day. You want to stay indigenous to your area. If it's for some of that and that's Chinese, your money too. You want to spend your money in your you area. You want to spend your money in the area you live in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you want to take yeah. care of the people that are around you. That's you right. Know? Instead of it going to and ben- back over to you, Bentonville, Arkansas, at the end of every day. Somebody, Brent, just as we were losing you earlier, and this wrath of folks. We got a bunch of folks on today, or we're coming on. I think it was Chuck said he wanted to ask you a question about something to do. Have you had a chance? to watch any of that Europa series. You know, I did. I watched uh, part of uh, the second part, the second um, in the series, second part of the series, yeah, and some of the first. So I've watched part of both of those. Uh-huh. I think there are four parts to it. There's but I got ten, the 10 real quick. And there's, there's 10. Yeah. It's oh, 13, ten. Oh. 13 hours oh, wow. long, man. Well, most of the things that I've seen are... They, they add uh, add things I didn't know, but in general, I know what they're saying, and I, I, I I've been introduced to some new personalities on there. A fellow by the name of McDonald, who is a psychologist from University of Kevin, UCLA, I believe. Kevin McDonald. Uh-huh. I've got his yeah. book. I'll send you his book, Culture of Critique. They don't like yeah. him at all. Oh, oh, <laughs> he's persona non grata, and of course. It's because he has the termidity to say, well, here's what I think from from an objective point of view about Jewish culture. You're not allowed to do that, see, because if you say anything, you say the word Jew, all you have to do is say it. You're an anti-Semite. Yep. It doesn't doesn't take anything more than that. We send our, our boys, and now 
unbelievably, shockingly, we send our girls over there to get their legs and arms blown off to face the ugly bullets that come pecking through the dust, and then we're not allowed to criticize their political policies. Uh, they're wrong about many, many things. Uh, why we're so attached to them, I, well, I do know why. It's a ruse. It's a ruse. And uh, it has nothing to do. I said when I think I said today when we were on, I was talking about the Dutch and the Presbyterians, and I talked about Henry Van Dyke, um, minister to the Netherlands, and uh, appointed classmate of Woody Wilson, appointed uh, minister. He was a Presbyterian minister, educated at Princeton. It used to be known for its theologians more than anything, and they were of the Reformed ilk until almost 1930. Princeton of the three. Ivy League, college, Ivy League colleges, uh, Harvard, uh, Yale, and Princeton, Princeton held out with its biblical points of view until almost 1930 at its seminary. Uh, the other two, uh, Harvard capitulated in the year 19, or 1811, and it embraced Unitarianism, and then it got worse, then it went to existentialism. Yale capitulated, but Princeton didn't. And um, I, in, in my younger years, knew personally uh, men that had gone to school there, they're passed away now. One of them was Sam Sutherland. He lived to be almost 100 years old. Uh, had gone to school to these men back at that time, back in the, the teens and 20s. Uh, that's going way back now, 100 years or more, almost 100 years. But uh, they knew these fellows, Robert Dick Wilson, B.B. Warfield, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, uh, Gershon Machen. Well, they were eventually thrown out of Princeton because they believed the Bible. As a matter of fact, the word fundamentalism, fundamentalism was unknown in the English-speaking world, and it was coined by those three men. And those men at that time said, we're the holdout here in uh, influential places in Princeton uh, that the Bible is uh, the law of God. It is the standard of God, the writs of God. We believe it. We believe it on good evidence, the best of evidence. There never has been a greater set of scholars of New Testament language and literature than B.B. Warfield and uh, Gershon Machen, and then of the Older Testament, Robert Dick Wilson. Uh, those men were unsurpassed. They were the ones that put more than any other men the understanding of scholarship of the Bible on the map here in the New World. Before that, it was the dead German philosophers that seemed to carry the day, and they were full of baloney. Now, these men, some of them, R.A. Torrey was from Yale, but he was separated from Yale. He was another one. But they understood those things, and they promoted them in America, and they, they were thrown out. And then they said, well, we've got to try to reestablish as best we can the authority of the Bible in our own country, or our own country will go down the tubes. And we're seeing the results of that, of Boy, course, now. No, we're not only seeing it, we're living it. Well, the, the anchor to men... As, as Coverdale said back in the days when the Bible was first being put into English from the original tongues, Coverdale was an associate of William Tyndale. He said, wherever the Bible goes, it bringeth order. I don't care what you say about it. You can. It's been stabbed. It's been shot. It's been put in the coffin. The eulogy has been cut on the tombstone. It's, uh, people have tried to bury it, but somehow the corpse never stays put. It comes back, it comes back, it comes back. The Bible is still the best seller in all the world, and there's a reason for that. It's because it is the very sentences, the mind of our Creator. And the evidence for that is overwhelming. It is, <laughs> to deny it is just downright silly. And a lot of men do, and most of those that do, of course, 
most all of them that deny it uh, and make a big deal about it and don't have a clue what's in it. They just, they hate their maker. That's what it boils down to. But I'm here to tell you, it's been my experience after all my decades, for what it's worth, that uh, the evidence for it is overwhelming. It's the greatest gift, the greatest gift that we have as Americans. No people on the faces of our earth has ever had more of a powerful influence of the writs of God than have have had Americans, including the nation Israel. The nation, the record of the nation Israel, the Bible, in the Bible, is a record of God's faithfulness and their utter faithlessness. No, they never really did grasp hold of it. God gave it to them, and he said, you're the stewards of it for the rest of Adam's race. Give it to them. They never did. They were racist to the core. <laughs> Even the book of the Bible we talk about, Jonah, Jonah and the whale, that, that was a, he was a prophet. But Jonah's pr problem was obvious. He was a racist of the worst sort. And that's what that book's about, his racism, his hatred of other people, when the only reason that Israel, is, the nation Israel, were given the writs of God, we call it the Bible, was so that they, would, they were the ones that were to give it to Adam's race. And they didn't do it. By and large, never did it. Now, they did it in this sense. When the, the living writs of God, the living word of God was delivered to mankind through that nation Israel, through the seed, from the seed of a non-Israelite named Abraham, another non-Israelite named Jacob, another non-Israelite named Isaac, and then other non-Israelites like the, the, the hooker from Jericho uh, is in that line, by the way, of our Messiah, uh, who was not an Israelite. She ran a whorehouse in Jericho. Her name was Rahab, the harlot, she's called in the Bible. And then some other, uh, a Moabitess. <laughs> Moab means my grandpa is my father. My grandpa is my father. Mm. Think, about, think about that one, because that's what really happened after Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, the Moabites were the product of Lot, and uh, their grandpa, the grandpa of, of Moab, of the, of the, of the father of, of the Moabitish people, their grandpa was their father. It's a long, ugly story of incest. But at any rate, even one of those women is in the line of Jesus Christ, not to mention a few others. But Jesus Christ is the living word of God that the Israelite people, whether they liked it or not, because even in their most dastardly deed to deliver him up to murder, which they did, delivered him up to the Romans, in doing so, they performed the function that God wanted them to perform and said that they would perform as priests to the race of Adam. And they delivered him over for death thinking they were getting rid of him, but by that very act, um, that event then worked to our redemption so that we would have access to our maker and that our guilt and our we were forensically really uh, justified as innocent before the judge of all the world. That's an incredible story. But at any rate, the Israelite people, though, were cursed of God as a people. doesn't mean the individuals of that race of people were all cursed, but as a people, yes, they have been, dis uh, they have been scattered, demonized. They are desperate at the law of, as the law of God said they would be. They are with people without country, without a country. They live in utter desperation. They are lawless. They're dangerous. That's what the law of Moses delivered to Moses in the book of Deuteronomy 
uh, said would happen. And it has happened, just as God said it would happen. So here we are. And the great distinction in the Bible, from cover to cover and lid to lid, is the distinction between it, um, that nation, or no, not, not that nation. I should say that culture called Judaism today, Babylonian Judaism, and all of the rest of the world. Um, there are many of all the rest of the world that have joined that culture, unfortunately. And they join it under many labels, all Babylonish religion, all secret societies, all of the false religions of the world, and that takes in all of them except one, the true religion, as James says, that accepts Jesus Christ as the remedy for man's law-breaking. All the rest of the world has joined in various ways and to various degrees what is called Babylonianism. Uh, the, the prototype in the Bible of all Babylonianism is Babylonian Judaism. And all you have to do is read the Gospels to see what Jesus Christ said about it and then read the epistles of, of that former Babylonian Judaic, uh, Paul the Apostle. He wouldn't even talk about it. He wouldn't mention it. He just said, I count out that all as a pile of, and to use the, the Dutch word, you can look it up, see what it really means, poppycock. It's a very earthy word, poppycock. And that's probably the best definition we can give to that word. A dung is hey, close, Brent. but doesn't get it. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. You were alluding to it, but could you elucidate and elaborate on the Judeo-Christian mythos? Oh. <laughs> Well, it's not a myth. It's not a myth to those that <laughs> okay. understand it. Okay. I, Again, to go I back to the okay. word myth I about this on Saturdays. Roger, am I coming through? You're loud and clear, brother. No, I'm not, am I? Yeah, you're well, there. I can't hear you. Yeah, yeah, you're there. Yes, we're hinging on every word. You're here. Yeah, I just hear noises. Hang on just a minute. All right. Uh, Brent's going to go check on the noises. Well, that's an opportunity. Noises <laughs> in the closet. Well, hopefully it's not the noise that knocked him off before or whatever. So uh, his okay, microphone right. sounds real good today. And, man, I had to sneeze. I got that cough button off just in time. Woo! Or you guys would have been in, inundated with my sneezing. I'm so sorry. So we're all back waiting for Brent to get back. Uh, you guys be queuing up any questions you've got. Um, until he gets back, let me just say one thing that I've really, I, we talked about earlier this week. I see the immigration and their overall program better than I ever have within the last couple of weeks. And that's the fact. It's very simple. They can't come in and do their magic with all of their crap on a nationalistic homo, you know, a, a, a nationalistic country. They've got to have diversification. The homogeneous is the word I was looking for, Bob. Thank you. Um, and, and they've got to have the multicultural diversity stuff because then they can pit each other, the, them against each other for one thing, and they can sit back in the background and do all their magic and nobody notices. Uh, that has become so clear to me that th that right there is the basis of all of their agenda's successes in the future. If they don't have that, they, nothing else works. They water it down. They, they've taken, because you can't call this a Christian nation anymore. They, they water the whole, they have watered the whole blasted thing done it, down. It's the same thing that, that, um, that Babylon did with uh, with the southern tribes. 
and they took them out and then they repopulated it with uh and i believe assyria did that as well they repopulated the land of israel with uh people that were not israelites well if you'll remember chuck that jerusalem was the prime and still is one of the one of the prime pieces of real estate on the face of the globe and everybody was fighting over it and the two tribes that had it judah and benjamin had to fight off edomites malachites all of those different tribes well all of a sudden nebuchadnezzar comes over and grabs them he doesn't get all of them but he takes the majority of them over to babylonian captivity nature abhors a vacuum what do you think happened they didn't have to get people in there they couldn't wait to get in there and they all interbred those times that they were in captivity and then when they get released they bring this babylonian stuff and plop it right in the middle of that yep and that's in and in our case what i've been saying is what ron paul has said we don't need a wall you just got to cut off the funds. Yeah. That's why everybody wants to come here. Sure. You know, because the United States is great. They don't want our common law. They want the benefits. Well, and of course, that's their draw is the welfare state. And that's what we came up with that show on Brent four years ago from the word Corban. They were running a welfare state back then, and Jesus came along, and that's what he was railing about. I mean, it's listen, it's the same thing. They're doing the same thing today. It is. You know, and we're I think originally we ourselves because 30, of it. I mean, immigration stuff. historically, immigration historically came here because of the opportunity, but right. that got turned on its face over generations, and now it comes for the free stuff. I still like Joyce Riley's take on that. The FSA, the Free Stuff Army, as she was diplomatically said, stuff, but the FSA, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Give me my goodies, I'm here. Well, don't forget, they were using immigration back in the middle 1800s because they immigrated all those communists from Germany that left and came over to our place, and the majority of those people were a large number of people that fought for the North in the Civil War or the Uncivil War or whatever that they you want a, to call it. So they've that been was milking a revelation this. to me. I have uh, never heard that. Okay, and then look at this other Before, thing. I mean, when the guy yeah. Cohen wrote the uh, wrote the Broadway play, The Melting Pot. Okay, and after that, as World War One started, and all those Jews were coming over, and they were letting them in, and, and it just infiltrated everything. The they called New York the Golden Honeycomb. And the minute they hit the streets and got with their people, the word was organize, organize, organize. They were setting this up back at the turn of the century real heavily and laying the structure down there. Yep, and of course, you want, to, you want to really get back and go further back. It used to be Scottish and English and a few of the other people that had originally founded the country, right? Who were the ones that brought the blacks right. in? The blacks are the ones that they brought well, in that originally caught it, caused, caused this schism. And then they took their situation, gave them a half-baked status, and then dumped all of us into it down the line. Tell me about melting pots, would you? Yeah. 
and then explain to me how the Supreme Court can represent anything when it's mostly Catholic and Jewish. Well, we got some, you know, things are going to change. We don't know exactly how or which direction they're going to go, but we don't really need to know. All we need to know is what we know and take our stance and stand our ground. Well, yeah, because everything is, you know, I was watching uh, part of that Cliff High and Sarah Westhall yesterday, and they were talking about how the Catholic Church is breaking up and how the... uh, the society, the societal paradigm, basically, is breaking up and changing. Yep. And I think that that is that is happening, and that there we're seeing some death throes. I think uh, with this, you know, the it take it takes. Okay, we say things about the Jews, and we're called anti-Semites, right? So uh, it takes an Arab woman or a, a Muslim to stand up and say something about this. The Semites, the well, I shouldn't say that because there's a lot of call them the Zionists. Just call, it's, call them the Zionists. That's Zionist. what it is. It's a political yeah, movement. It's go. called Zionism. Yeah, you're right. So she stands up. It takes her to stand up. Well, first of all, look at it. I look at it, saw this yesterday. This made me think. They brought in the Democrats, brought in the Muslims, right, and and Republicans as well, and they love on them. And they're friendly to them, and they receive them, and then all of a sudden, one of them pipes up in, in the public and starts talking about the the Zionists. Hold it, hold <laughs> it, hold it! You know, don't you remember what started all this? It wasn't. She didn't say the word Zionist. She said it was a tweet and said something about control of Congress was with the Benjamins. And quoting, kind of taking, playing off lyrics that are in some rap song. All she said was Benjamins, Chuck. She didn't even say Zionists. Now, listen, I I listened to an hour-long program of David Duke last night on this issue. And he made a really important point. Don't forget, he's been a representative, too, you know, Uh, even though they demonize him. she, he says, she's the most important person in Congress right now, <laughs> and I'll be darned if I don't halfway agree with him, because she's the only one that's got the balls. This little diminutive Arab woman to get up and say something like that, and then have the audacity to stand her ground. Well, you got to know that her, she, and AOC both are not self-made. AOC, we know, because she simply doesn't have the wherewithal to just be launched into the spotlight like that. She's got handlers that are carefully crafting this in the background. And, and the American public, by and large, looks at her and says, wow, look at that meteoric rise. That's just amazing. Well, no, yes. what's amazing is that you believe it. Yep. And this woman, this Arab, this, wo- this Arab woman couldn't be doing anything if her male superiors, uh, keepers, Plan whatever hadn't put her up to it. She's a mouthpiece. Well, but yet we look at them I, as if they're somehow self-made. I can't imagine them intentional. And that's not to denigrate women. That's well, not my point. you know, Bob, my I can't. Is how how easily we bite onto that? Um, I can't imagine them sowing the seeds of discontent that they've sown as this moves forward in the Democratic Party intentionally. 
what what I see oh, is I that she where it was go. she got in there. She made the statement that the the Jews are so hypersensitive to Zionists right now because they know they're being exposed all over the world, yeah. and they don't want anything like that popping up. So what did they do? They overreacted. Oh, we're going to pass this resolution. Oh, you got to do this and make this do apology, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And now all of a sudden, a bunch of other people are standing up and saying, "Oh no, she doesn't. She didn't say that. anything anti-Semitic, you know." And her point, her point that really was riveting to me was where she said, "I'm being called anti-American because I'm not defending a foreign country." Yeah, isn't that ironic? Okay. That's funny. Yep. It's pretty poignant yep. that little point she made. So I see I and see the, the seed part of it to me is that it takes an Arab heritage woman to bring this up to white men who are supposed to be leaders. Well that's exactly what David Duke supposed was covering. To. That's exactly what Duke was covering yeah. in that talk last night. I mean exactly the point you hit on. Yeah. And it's very valid. Okay. So I'm just sitting back and enjoying it, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Watch them squirm. Yep. And the, and see now it works like and now it steps into the downward spiral because now more commotion is made out of it and that means more people are exposed to it and to what they're doing and a, a great percentage of the American people are, are are starting to turn against all this Israeli crap. Well, you yeah. see the backlash well, and then strength given to those. It allows, it affords others who have had this sentiment in the past or knowledge to step forward and be strengthened by yep. it. Yep. It shouldn't take that, but it does. It it is the course that's been taken, and it will help others to stand for. I think who was it? Some yeah, was it the guys in the U.S. Congress that were saying that? No, we're not. We we're not going to pass a resolution. Is was it those guys that said that? Yes, it was the remember. other. Yeah, they made them go in and change it. Now they're going to broaden the language to an anti-hate resolution. So more of this hate from the haters, you know, to those who hate oh, truth. Oh, that is so rich. Yeah, to those who hate. Like, like the, we need legislation to say that hate is bad. Right. Really? Can we do something constructive with our time? Good grief. No, yes, we can go over <laughs> and, and pass Senate Bill Number 1, which shuts down anybody that wants to participate in BDS. And that whole thing's going to cave in on them, too. Okay? And don't forget, I those of you. I to you were talking about how, you know, their backlash. I liken it to a bird or some animal caught in a snare or a net. Yep. The more they thrash around, the deeper they're going to get mired in it because they've been caught. Yeah. Well, yep. Yes, that, absolutely. And, and isn't that happening to them in every one of their agendas? The financial agenda, the political agenda, the uh, trying to the yellow vest, all this stuff. It backlashes on them every time because they've deviated from what is natural. And they can, they can manipulate yeah, it and control it to some extent, but at some point it takes over what they've done that's negative and it eats them up. And you see it over and over and over again. If I may, yes, sir. repeat. Yes, sir, Robert. I kind of, I kind of dozed off sitting in my pickup here. Did, did Brent drop off? He said he had to go check on something, and we hadn't heard from him since. I think he's still connected. Okay. Okay. Right. I got a thing here. Which go back I, to sleep, Robert. 
<laughs> I'm supposed to be able. Somewhere on here, I can tell who's on all on the line. But man, I just—I'll tell you what, Skype, Microsoft has done a number on this thing. So anyway, we're just fortunate that we can have our platform and our conversation. Got about 15 minutes or so left. Anybody got any topics to, that you'd like to get covered, or you think is interesting? I certainly do. Okay, Robert. Did you see the article? Did you see the article talking about the Nevada legislature thinking about contemplating? Passing a law, I'll use the word loosely, to allow police uh, agents, whoever, police troopers, whomever, to access your mobile phone yes. and yes. try to figure yes. out what you've been up to in the case of a wreck or in the case of an accident or something. And you know where it's leading. I mean, of course, there's no chance this could ever go beyond that purely, uh, you know, altruistic intent for the good of society. Yeah, right. But, yeah, they're, they're talking about the fact that if you don't submit, then you're going to lose your driving privileges and you're going to be fine. It's like if you don't give them a... Basically if you don't give them a blood test on a DUI, like you don't give them a blood test on a DUI stop, that kind of thing. Yeah, if you won't do the sobriety test, you're assumed guilty. Well, now that's not common law. Okay, well you're right, it's not. No, and that <laughs> and that and that law and Bob, that law is written for residents. Brent, did you join us again? It's I thought I saw that you did. Well, it said he left, what and it said he joined us again. I tell you what, man, this is one of those techie days. Let's see, March the Hello, 8th. Rock. There's Brent. See Hello. there? It was right. He is there. Well, you know, one thing oh. I failed to mention is today's the 8th. I did say that. That means tomorrow's the 9th and Sunday's the 10th. And that would be uh -huh. next Friday that we're on together again is the 15th, Brent. And that's right square dead in the middle <laughs> of the Ides of March, buddy. Oh, I, Beware. I see. Yeah. Well, did um, I, I've been listening the whole time, Roger. I don't know why I wasn't on. Then all of a sudden, I'm on again. I, I, I can't control that. But at any rate, I'm back, and okay. I enjoyed listening to the conversation. But somebody had asked about um, about Judeo-Christian. Yes. Chuck, it was I believe, Chuck. wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. That, and, that was uh, me, actually. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Apologize. But uh, the way no I understand it. The way I understand it, oh, there's a good book on the subject I would recommend uh, on the phrase and its history. And uh, Gary North is the author, Gary North. And Gary wrote a book that's been several years ago about it. That's one, but there are others you can find. But uh, the phrase Judeo-Christian is as absurd and ludicrous as the phrase uh, Islamic Christian. Uh, yeah. <laughs> as a matter of fact, it's just stupid. I mean, these people we call Babylonian Judaism, and some of them in ignorance, all of us in ignorance to various degrees. And when we do things that God, we know better. You know, we're we're all lawbreakers of God's holy laws. That's what we are, and we're in desperate situation without the remedy that He provides, the Messiah of God. But these particular folk are not folk you want to follow because they utterly deny Jesus Christ as official doctrine. You can't go, you can't immigrate to Israel, the state of Israel today, if you're a Christian. They won't let you in. You can go there and visit, but you can't become a citizen unless you embrace what they want you to embrace, which is Babylonian Judaism. Um, Christianity, you can't even speak about it there. There's no freedom of speech to, 
to proselytize. They'll put you in jail. You people. Oh, no question. And then people are saying, we support the state of Israel. They're Babylonian. They're tyrannical. They're totalitarian in, in those degrees. No freedom of speech. No freedom of association. Um, they hate with a pink, purple passion Jesus Christ. So to so say where'd that phrase come from? Pardon? He said, where did the phrase... the of that phrase, Judeo-Christian? Well, well, it, well it arose after World War II in an effort to soften up Christian folk, Christian folk in Christendom, to the idea of a, a Jewish state. And that's what they have done. They've done a good job there. promoting it, and now people accept it. And as a matter of fact, what's called the he Hebrew Roots Movement is popular in America. I, I warn people against it. The Hebrew Roots Movement doesn't mean we're going to look at the law of God. No, it doesn't mean that. It means we're going to be... We're going to follow the tenets of Babylonian Judaism. I heard you say, Roger, the other day about, yeah, you did. I think it was yesterday about the rabbis that went to Congress and got them to pass a resolution concerning the Noahide laws. Well, it's how the they Noahide. did it. This was from, I'll, yeah. I'll retell the story for anybody who missed it. You can get it. Dr. Lorraine Day's got an interview out with two Messianic Jews, about an hour-long interview, and it came from that. And so her, she married a congressman out in California. I think after he was already in Congress, but I don't remember. But regardless, she went back and did some research, and, and she went. She tells this story. She said, I went to my husband. I said, you were in Congress that day. And he goes, huh, huh, he's oblivious to everything. And what they did was they dismissed the session. Everybody left but four. They brought in this little resolution of some sort to commemorate Rabbi Schmierson, and in that was the Noahide laws. And that's how they got them through, just like they did the Federal Reserve Act. Yeah, and they didn't really get them through in the sense they're not declared to be law, but what they did was, the way I get it, Roger, was they, um, Congress passed a resolution, just like you were talking a while ago, they passed a resolution. Well, their opinion, what they believe about hate law or whatever, they passed a resolution accepting um, the validity of Talmudic law. This is by bits and pieces and increments. To accept the validity of Talmudic law is worse than accepting the validity of Sharia law. You go read the Talmud and you'll discover why. Pedophilia is not just... It's, it's, it's promoted. As long as a boy is nine years old, sex with him is okay. And they'll say, oh, it doesn't really mean that by what... It, no, it does. I'm, I'm not stupid. I can read. And you say, well, not everybody's like that. Well, I know not all Islamic well, well, people want on. to kill me either. If it, if it but their mean... official doctrine is, <laughs> their official doctrine is that I am targeted because I'm a Christian man and I'm to be killed. Well, see, this That's is, their official this is where nobody confronts them. If it doesn't mean that, what the hell does it mean? Then disregard and say, I don't want that and say it's evil. Say that. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's a good point. Yeah, and if, if something is evil, it's evil, you say so. Why is it that the Roman Catholics do not say the priesthood of Rome is evil? They've been abusing women and children and each other for centuries. It's just now coming out. And we know in history that this has been the only reason for the priesthood was that they could do things in secret and be above the law. That's what it's all about. It's still, that's what it's all about. All these false questions. Oh, yeah, I was going to amend your... Rabbi I was going to try and end, hold your question for a second, Rab, uh, uh, Robert. In, in Ted Weiland's yeah, book, which is uh, uh, the God's 
chosen covenant people yesterday, today, and forever. Excellent book, very hard-hitting. And what he does is compare the Zionist side and the Christian side on all these different issues. And there's a whole section on Judeo-Christian in there. And I remember one of the quotes from one of the Jewish sources, and the guy said it was the greatest public relations coup of the 20th century. Now, your question. Wouldn't a rabbi in the halls of Congress be a violation of separation of church and state? <laughs> just, just like when they invited the Republican, invited, what was that guy's name in Ohio? Boehner. Boehner. Yeah. He spearheaded the... Uh, the, the effort to get the Pope of Rome in front of Congress yeah. to make an address. Yeah. Now, that's a violation yeah. of the First Amendment that could not be more blatant. And it could not be more yeah. blatant that we would, yeah. our Congress would acknowledge Talmudic law. That is a yeah. law, as our Declaration of 76 says, the canon law is foreign to our law. That they were speaking of the Quebec Act that was passed, Parliament had passed just before the Declaration of 76, extending or acknowledging the, and giving the French-speaking people in Quebec the, the right to follow the Roman law, which was, is also the canon law, and to extend the jurisdiction of, that, of Quebec down to the Ohio River. That's what they did. That's why it says in our Declaration of 76 that you have established a law foreign to our laws in a neighboring province with the intention of extending those laws into these colonies. Well, they did it. And that's one of the great reasons why we went to war, because of that foreign law. There's only one kind of foreign law, and that's the law of the city. Um, and it's most pronouncedly expressed today in what's called the Code of Justinian, the law of the old Roman Empire uh, put in place and given its most sophisticated expression in, in the 5th century under the Roman Emperor Justinian. But the Talmudic law, the Talmudic law, and the Sharia law are fundamentally the same law. It's just a law of logic. Logic governs and not fact. Logic becomes the all-encompassing uh, preoccupation with life. Logic becomes elegant. Logic becomes beautiful. The man who can use logic to do anything he wants is the one that's venerated. And he's nothing but a lion SOB, a son of Belial. As Paul the Apostle says, ever learning, never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. All the punky professors and the and the PhDs, all these fellows, learning, 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 learning logic, being logic, being eloquent in their expressions, and all of that's beautiful. And it's nothing wrong with it. Use, as Paul says, the law used lawfully. But once you start using logic, as Merriman says, once logic becomes the preoccupation, again, we call it scholasticism and Romanism, it's Talmudic Judaism, it's Sharia law. All three of those came into existence in their modern form at the same time by contemporaries, St. Thomas Aquinas, Averroes of North Northern Africa, the Islamic sage of Mohammedes. I've repeated this, and I keep repeating it because it bears repeating. I think we mentioned it last week, Roger. But this is what the, these are three expressions to make us think they're different. They're not different. The evil empire, all false religions, says the says says the Bible, are from the whore of all whores, Babylon first organized under the first emperor of the world, Nimrod. You can read about it in Gen Genesis chapter 11 and on outside sources. Go ahead, Roger. Now, you're going to go ahead and tell everybody if they don't know how they can access more of you. And you're always kind to say that, Roger. And of course, I want people to get the message that are uh, here, the one that I'm putting out. That's uh, You can go to www.commonlawyer.com, commonlawyer.com. 
And you can find there uh, 200 audio clips you can access on the media page. You can find on um, other pages there. When I'm on the radio, I'm on the radio five days a week. People Patriot Network, this network is one of them. You can find when I'm on there. And you can also join us on Saturdays and Sundays. Uh, we have church services on Sunday morning. We're going through the Gospel of John. It tells you how to do that. To go to the events button at commonlawyer.com. And you can find out how to join us by your telephone, your smartphone, or your your computer. You can see me, but I can't see you. That's on Sunday mornings. On Saturday mornings, we just finished an evidence class, Common Law of Evidence, 45 weeks. Now we're taking a breather and talking about patriot mythology and discussing different different things that come up. And then finally, we hope to get into the law of contracts and promises on Saturday mornings. Well, Brent, I really appreciate everything that you do, and I appreciate you being here with us on Fridays. And uh, now everybody knows why you're so darn busy. Uh, You guys have a nice weekend, and we'll see next week. I think next week's going to have a lot of volatility involved, so we'll see what it brings. And uh, thanks for being with us. There's so many people, I can't name you all off, but everybody that contributed today, Thanks a bunch. Have a great weekend. I'll see you all on Monday, okay? And thanks as always, Brent. I guess that's a wrap. Yeah, man. God bless America. We're done for the week. I'm going to go get a haircut.